Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Have you ever wondered about making your own boiled linseed oil? Are you curious about how to make serpentine front furniture forms? Do you have trouble sharpening blades with heavy curves? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 15 of the show for November 21st, 2017. Can't believe it's been uh, about three weeks or so since the, the last show. But before I start today's show, uh, I just want to take a minute to thank all the folks who support the show over at Patreon including Bill Elliott, Arcadius Joukowsky, Bill Warnock, Krister Kay, Lawrence Polinski, Jeff Skiles, Joe Delarier, Jens Rosendahl, Matt McGrain, Jared Tolan, and thanks to a new patron this week, Chris Barnes. Thank you, Chris, and everyone for your generous support of the show. And if you'd like to support the show, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. So not too much has changed or not too much has gone on in the shop since the last show. It's pretty much uh, status quo, I would say. We uh, continue to work on the cabin, uh, and that's really been the priority. I haven't really done anything in the shop. Um, I've got some, some saws that uh, I'm finishing up sharpening, but other than that, that's about the only work that I've done in the shop uh, since, God, I can't even remember when, uh, since the, the cabin has been pretty much taken up all of my time. Uh, but this week, I even had to uh, take a break from the cabin because it turns out we had a, a bad septic line at the house we are currently in while we are trying to build the cabin. So we, uh, we spent about a week trying to diagnose the clog and, and snaking drains and, and replacing poorly installed vent systems and everything we could um, before we eventually had to dig up the line that goes from the house out to the septic tank. And lo and behold, there were three cracks in, uh, in that pipe, that four-inch pipe that goes from the house to the septic tank. Uh, and the, uh, that main line was of course, filled with uh, with weeds and roots and and everything else that had grown in through those uh, through those cracks in the pipe. So, I spent the last uh, last several days hand digging a uh, a trench from the house out to the septic tank, about and replacing about uh, thirty five feet of pipe. So, needless to say, not the most satisfying job in the world to do, and. Uh, as my my friend Stephen mentioned on uh, Instagram, it's not even uh, not even really a, a job that you get any satisfaction out of once it's done. It's just one of those things that you know it's got to be done. You get it done. It's nasty while you're doing it, and you're just thankful that it's over when it's finally finished. So, uh, fingers crossed, we we figured it out and and we've got it now, and we're not going to have any more problems with it. And really, it's only got to last us hopefully about six more months until. We uh, are able to get the cabin finished and and be able to move into there. So that's about it. Uh, what I've been what I've been up to the last few weeks. So with everything that's been going on uh, here over the the last few weeks, with all the work on the cabin that's been going on, uh, I really have 
not put a whole lot of thought into a main topic for today's show, I'm sorry to say. So uh, today's show is just going to be listener questions. So uh, I thank you all for sending those in, and I encourage you to keep sending them in because, uh, you know, we're starting to get a little bit low on questions, and I would like to uh, keep answering your questions on the show because the show depends on your questions. So uh, we're just going to do listener questions today. So the first question uh, comes from Andrew. And Andrew says, I'm just getting into woodworking, and I managed to start a nice little collection of hand tools as well as some power tools. I do like using the power tools for some tasks, but I've found that many times it's quicker to just grab a hand tool than to get everything set up with a power tool. Some of the tools I have are my grandfather's or great-grandfather's, and so aren't always in the greatest shape. I have an old Distin D8 that's in good shape with mineral rust that I'm planning on cleaning up before sending out for sharpening. The handle looks like it has some type of film finish on it, but has some paint splatters as well. Do you have any suggestions for how to remove the paint without damaging what is generally a nice original finish? So there are a couple ways that I've done this. Um, the original finish on the um, on the distant handles, I believe, was a lacquer, some type of lacquer. Uh, most of those, um, at least the ones that were were made later, like in the 50s, I would say. Um, it's probably some type of shellac or varnish for the much earlier handles. So it really depends on when your saw was um, was made, um, what type of finish it actually is. You can certainly test the finish with different types of solvents. Um, you know, start with the, with the mildest, like uh, mineral spirits, and, and see what happens. Um, you can then move up to something like alcohol or, or lacquer thinner and see what actually dissolves the solvent, and that'll help you identify what's on there. But that's probably not all that important. Um, I've removed paint splatters from saw handles in, in a few different ways. So the first thing I do is usually the, the least invasive, um, and that would be to take a, a piece of steel wool, maybe some 4-aught or 3-aught steel wool, and dunk it in some mineral spirits and just give the handle a little scrub. So this is going to clean up the handle, first of all. It's going to clean most of the, the grime and the gunk off. And it's also going to take off most paint splatters if they, um, you know, if the finish underneath is still pretty well intact. If the finish has been damaged and the paint has actually made its way to the bare wood, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to remove. But if what you're saying is true and the the handle, original handle finish is still in pretty good shape, the steel wool and mineral spirits should do most of the work. Um, you can even use your, your fingernail as a, a scraper and you, you'd be surprised how many paint splatters you can pop off if, uh, if the finish underneath is still intact with just using your fingernail as a little scraper. If the mineral spirits and... Um, and steel wool don't work, and your fingernail scraping the paint doesn't work, um, what you can do is create a, uh, make a small scraper a, out of a, a razor blade. You take a single edge razor blade, and you don't want to use it as is because it's too sharp and you could damage the finish, but if you take the edge of that blade and you drag it over some sandpaper, like a, a 400 grit sandpaper, say, and you just drag that edge backwards across the sandpaper, it's going to create like a little hook, a little burr on the edge of that razor blade. And it's going to be a less aggressive than using like a card scraper, I would say. So, and you can just use that razor blade and uh, scrape those little paint splatters off. Um, 
trying to maintain the original finish as best as possible. Um, and that tends to work pretty good. Um, you may have to, you know, use a little bit of refinisher, um, something like a Formby's refinisher works pretty good. It's, it's a solvent that does not completely dissolve the original finish, but when you do something like use a, a razor blade scraper to scrape off the paint splatters, it's inevitable that you're probably going to scratch the uh, original finish a little bit. But if you take a piece of steel wool and you soak it in some type of refinishing solvent, like like a Formby's refinisher, um, and then you kind of scrub that handle with that refinisher afterwards, it it dissolves a small amount of the original finish and allows you to essentially spread it out and reapply it. Um, and it'll kind of blend those scratches in a little bit, and it'll really help with um, with with uh, fixing the spots that that you scrape the paint off of. Um, and then from there, you know, just let that let the solvent flash off or rinse it off with some water after you're uh, after you're done with the refinisher. Just follow the directions on the can, and then uh, you know, and then once it's dry and all the all the solvent is gone, then you can go ahead and put on you know your finish of choice whether you just want to wax it. And that's probably what I would do would just be to use a little steel wool and uh, paste wax and uh, wax the handle up real good, and and it should. Uh, should provide you years more service. So our next question comes from someone who calls himself Rockaways. And the question says, I have some chisels that appear to be shop made. They came in a tool chest I acquired along with several other tools. According to the previous owner, it was his grandfather's. His grandfather had emigrated to Western Canada in the late 1920s from his home country. And when he moved east to Ontario in the 1930s, he arrived with the tool chest. The chisels in question bear no maker's mark, and the thickness and steel tell me these would be suitable for pairing only. The side bevels are smooth with no grinder marks, but not always even, meaning the left and right bevel along the edge may be slightly different sizes. He had worked in a local furniture factory until the early 1970s, so I suspect these dated from this period. The part about the chisel that confuses me is the tangs do not have built-in bolsters. The current handles are obviously challenged by this, being pushed to the limit with indents to the ferrule and the worst with cracked handles or blades embedded in the handle. Not sure there's much to be done about the handles, but replace and referral. If you have any suggestions for rehandling a bolsterless tang chisel, I would appreciate it. Well, so what it sounds like is it's two, two possibilities. The first is that what you actually have in your hands are turning chisels. Old turning chisels were tang chisels, but they did not have bolsters. And that's one way that um, we sometimes are able to distinguish between what were essentially bench chisels or firmer chisels and turning chisels because the turning chisels did not have bolsters. But your description also said that these had side bevels. So it sounds like they were actually bevel edge chisels with no bolsters which would lead me to believe they were not turning chisels because I don't think I've ever seen turning chisels that were, were bevel-edged. So it is likely that they are they were at some point um, user-made. Um, you know, the gentleman's grandfather may have made them himself or, or maybe they were made by a, a smith or, or someone in, uh, in his home country before the, he came to Canada. Um, but in any any effect, it's, it is going to cause problems when you 
hit a bolsterless chisel with a mallet because it's just going to continue to drive that tapered tang into the handle, which ferrule or no ferrule is eventually going to crack the handle as you're finding out. Um, there's not a lot you can do, but if you're willing to do a bit of metal work, you can make a separate bolster for the chisel. Essentially what you need to do is get yourself a piece of tool steel. You don't have to harden it. You don't have to worry about that because you're, you're not using it for a cutting edge. But essentially what you want to do is you, you get yourself a piece of tool steel and you're going to drill a hole in it and then file that hole square so that the hole itself fits the tang of the chisel. Now, the other thing you're going to need to do is file the tang of the chisel to create a shoulder on the tang. So you want to, you want to, what I would do is to file the, the tang of the chisel first and create that shoulder on the tang. And then with the piece of steel that you bought to make the separate uh, bolster, you drill a hole and you file that hole square so that it fits right up under the shoulder of the, that you filed in the tang. And then you can cut that uh, piece of, of tool steel to the shape of a bolster or whatever shape you want it to be. And you slide it on. You don't even need to, to solder it or weld it or anything. It just needs to fit tightly against the shoulder and the tang. And what you've essentially done is created sort of a washer, really, a shoulder uh, that fits against the shoulder of the tang. And that's going to essentially be a bolster and that will create that will keep the tang from being driven any farther than the bolster. So it's going to require um, a good bit of, of metalworking on your part. But if you're willing to uh, to do that, you can certainly make a separate bolster for the uh, for the chisels and, and fit that bolster to them. And that should solve your problem. Um, if you're you know not up for that, um, I would say there's not a whole lot that you're going to be able to do to prevent it from happening in the future. So just be prepared to rehandle and referral the chisels when they, when they crack. So our next question is from Dr. Nono. And he says, in a previous post, you had mentioned using non-chemically treated linseed oil as a finish. Is that the same as organic flaxseed oil? Also, you mentioned heat treating the oil so it cures faster. What's the process for that? What temperatures and for how long? So the first thing I will say is, well, so let me answer your, your first question. Um, organic flaxseed oil. Essentially, yes, linseed oil is basically the same thing as organic flaxseed oil. Uh, linseed oil is the, it's the oil from the flax plant. So, um, so yes, that is essentially the same thing. Now, linseed oil is a polymerizing oil, which basically means um, it will dry. It is a drying oil. And it will dry without any type of treatment whatsoever. I have bought raw linseed oil. Some hardware stores carry it. Um, some, some better hardware stores will carry raw linseed oil, which is linseed oil that has not been kettle boiled or has not been treated with any type of chemical dryer. You can buy boiled linseed oil in the hardware store, but that Boiled linseed oil is not actually boiled. They add chemical, heavy metal chemical dryers, Japan dryers, to the oil to make it polymerize faster. So while it's called boiled linseed oil, it's not really boiled. It's treated chemically so that it, it will dry faster. 
Raw linseed oil will eventually dry on its own. It just takes a little bit longer um, than oil that has been treated. I've also bought um, cold-pressed linseed oil or raw linseed oil from art supply stores. And you can usually buy this in, in small quantities. Um, usually, you know, about a quart, a pint or a quart, you can get some raw linseed oil. Now, with that said, it is possible to heat treat or or kettle boil your own linseed oil. Um, it is something you certainly want to be very careful doing. Um, I'm going to refer you to a, a book by my friend Stephen Shepard. Um, it's a, a book called Shellac, Linseed Oil, and Paint, Traditional 19th Century Woodwork Finishes. And Stephen goes through the process in that book, starting on page 35, of how you would treat or heat that linseed oil. Um, you need to be careful doing this because linseed oil has a flash point of about 420 degrees. So if you heat the oil to 420 degrees, it will ignite. Um, and you really don't want to deal with an oil fire on your hands. So now, according to Stephen, the oil needs to be heated to about 300 degrees to produce kettle boil linseed oil. Um, you can heat it warmer as, lo as long as you don't heat it up to the 420 degree flash point. Heating it above 300 shouldn't make, shouldn't, cause too many problems unless you get it too close to that flash point. Um, he does say that uh, if you do heat it to 400, it will make the oil break, causing part of the mixture to form little lumpy chunks that you would have to then remove from the finished uh, finished product. But he does say, and, and, and Stephen has done a lot of uh, hands-on experimenting with this, so I do trust his opinion on this. Um, he says that the the problem does not happen to oil that has not been heated to more than 300 degrees and heating to more than 300 degrees really is not necessary. And in fact, the appreciable effects of heating are noticed when heated to just 225 degrees. Um, he also says that it does not appear that linseed oil benefits from prolonged heating. So once the proper temperature is reached, the oil is boiled, removed from the heat and allowed to cool. Um, his, what he says is is that uh, when a little waft of smoke is detected, not steam, but smoke, then the boiling is completed. Remove it from heat and let it cool. So basically, about three hundred degrees is what you what you need to um, to heat it to. But I would definitely recommend getting Stephen's book because he goes into a lot more detail. Um, I'm certainly not going to read it here. Um, and uh, and with with if you're not familiar with Stephen Shepard, he was a, a very prolific. Um, woodworker and writer on 19th century craft. Um, and he had a, a stroke a few years ago and, and has not been able to be in the shop. He's been in one-on-one in, um, -on -one care since. So, um, you know, every, if you do buy one of his books, especially if you buy directly from his website at fullchisel.com, um, it does go, every bit of those proceeds go to help Stephen. So I would recommend buying that book um, and looking up chapter three on linseed oil, and he goes into a lot of detail on a lot of different practices and, and uses for linseed oil and ways to use linseed oil finish. But yes, it is possible to boil your own linseed oil uh, at home. I would recommend doing it outside, uh, keeping a fire extinguisher handy, and really watching the temperature very closely if you decide to go ahead and do so.
So our, our next question is from Paul. Paul says, I'm a home hobbyist who predominantly uses power tools. I have a limited selection of hand tools that get occasional use. Recently, I was cleaning up a wide, shallow bevel on a tabletop using my Veritas low-angle jack plane and experienced quite a bit of tear-out with the tool. I believe that if I had used a tool with a high-angle blade, I might not have run into these problems. Lee Valley sells blades for my model of plane with a 38 and 50-degree bevels in addition to the 25-degree blade that I currently own. Would buying these blades and swapping them in and out when needed perform as well as buying a dedicated high-angle plane? The blades are about $50 each, whereas a dedicated plane would be in the $300 ballpark. So tear out. Um, what I would say is, is the first thing I would suggest is to make sure that your blade is sharp. Um, because I'm surprised that if planing a bevel, just a long grain bevel, that you're experiencing a lot of tear out if you're just cleaning up that bevel. Um, the second thing is to make sure you're, you're planing in the direction of the grain. Um, bevels, you will find sometimes you will find uh, grain direction changes w when you're planing a bevel. Um, just because you're, you're now dealing with face grain and, ed and edge grain at the same time. So it can cause a bit of a problem if, you know, if you plane in one direction, maybe try f turning around and planing in the other direction and see if that doesn't help. Usually if you examine the tear out closely, you can see which direction the, uh, the fibers are tearing. So sometimes just turning around and going the opposite direction, excuse me, will help. Um, but if freshly sharpening the blade doesn't help and changing directions doesn't help, then it could just be the species of wood that you're using um, and a higher angle of attack certainly can be beneficial. Uh, low bevel angles are definitely more prone or, or low, low attack angles, I should say, um, are definitely more prone to tearing out. I mean, you can just, if you use a, a low angle bevel up block plane, um, and compare that to a, you know, a standard angle, 45 degree bed angle plane, um, you know, on a squirrely piece of timber, you're going to notice that the low angle plane is most likely going to cause more problems with tear out than the higher angle plane. Higher angles were designed for reducing tear out. Um, and the chip breaker on a traditional, uh, double iron plane essentially serves to increase that angle and break the chip before, um, just like a higher, higher bed angle would. Um, now I've never personally used one of the low angle planes with a higher bevel angle blade in it. However, I have used higher bevel, higher bed angle planes, uh, both in iron and wooden versions all the way up to, um, 60 degree bedded frogs. Um, and it certainly does help quite a bit when you've got some nasty squirrely grain to deal with. So I would say yes, that these these um, higher angle blades should perform the task just as well as a dedicated high angle plane um, because even with a, a single iron wooden plane, for example, bedded at 55 or 60 degrees, it's really the wood is seeing nothing different than it would if you were using your Veritas low angle jack you know, with a, a 50 degree bevel or a 38 degree bevel. So I would say definitely give it a try. Um, it should certainly help. The one disadvantage I would see with using a low angle plane with one of those blades at such a high bevel angle, um, 
is that the blade is not going to get as sharp as a higher angle plane um, or, or a plane with a high bed angle. Um, and that may or may not matter. So essentially with a, you know, a 50 degree bevel angle or a 38 degree bevel angle, you're approaching scraping, maybe not with the 38, um, but definitely with the 50, you're approaching scraping and not cutting. And even with a 38 degree bevel, um, you're starting to get into pretty steep bevel territory there. I mean, I've got some 40 degree bevels on some of my turning tools and, um, even, you know, honing them on stones, they just don't get that sharp because that bevel angle is so steep. So I think the real advantage of a high angle bevel down style plane in this situation is that the blade is able to be sharpened to a, a, a keener edge. Um, and your low angle plane with a high bevel angle blade in it is going to be approaching a scraper. Uh, more because that that blade's just not going to get as sharp. But um, you know, I do. I have acquaintances that that swear by the low angle planes with high um, bevel angle blades. So I have no doubt that it will work. So definitely give it a try um, before you you go and plunk down three hundred dollars on a, another plane. So next question comes from Scott. Scott says, "My wife has acquired a liking for serpentine front pieces, and has voluntold me." that she would like me to make her a small a set of small serpentine front dressers to use as bedside tables in our master bedroom. My question is this. With my shop consisting mostly of hand tools and with my skill level being at the amateur intermediate level, what is going to be the easiest way for me to make the serpentine fronts for the drawers? I've come across several good ideas with my research. First, shaping solid stock building a substrate for veneer or building a substrate type structure out of thinner solid stock and then laminating them together to create the fronts. But all these ideas were penned by people with access to bandsaws and such, which I don't have. What would you recommend here? So Scott, um, serpentine, serpentine front pieces are certainly really cool. Um, I have not made one myself. I have used some of the techniques used to make serpentine fronts for other uh, uh, other projects however so um, I think that the what you've what you've researched is essentially your three choices so the first is to shape solid stock now there are advantages and disadvantages to all of these techniques the shaping this shaping of solid stock I would say is your best bet if you are not planning to shape the inside of the drawers so in other words, if you're going to take, say, a piece of eight quarter stock for your drawer front and you're going to carve the front of it to a serpentine shape, but you're going to leave the inside of the drawer flat, then shaping solid stock is going to be your best bet. Um, the other benefit of shaping the drawers this way is that you are going to be have a much easier time cutting the dovetails because essentially you're cutting dovetails in square flat stock referencing off the interface of the drawer front. And then you're only shaping the drawer front to match the serpentine shape of your drawer blades or, or drawer dividers. So that's option one. Um, and that would be the path that I would take if I wanted that the inside of the drawer to remain square. 
If you want the inside of the drawer to be serpentine shaped to match the outside of the drawer front, then I would say shaping solid stock is probably not going to be the best bet. You're going to be wasting a whole lot of wood doing that. Um, and you're better off going in another direction. So your second suggestion was building a substrate for veneer. So I'm having a little bit of trouble with, with understanding what you mean by that one. But in, in my mind, whether you build a substrate for veneer or shape solid stock, the process is still the same. So the veneer is really just going to be the show surface, right? So you can, if you're going to shape solid stock, then you would, um, shape it out of a, like for, for example, that eight quarter piece and then veneer the front just to show some additional figure or a different type of wood or, or, you know, what have you. Um, I have seen what I refer to as brick stack substrates made where, um, you take your substrate, your substrate might be say poplar and you cut a bunch of little blocks and you go ahead and you glue all those blocks together in a brick stack pattern. The, the whole point of doing that though, isn't really to make shaping the serpentine front any easier. It's to create a more stable base for the veneer. So I wouldn't say that doing that type of substrate, that brick, brick stack type substrate is really going to benefit you all that much um, in terms of ease of construction. It's more for stability. Um, and if, again, if you wanted to do that, you would build that substrate. You would veneer both sides, the inside and the outside after you shaped the serpentine on the outside, but veneering that serpentine front is going to be a challenge. You're going to need to create calls that match that serpentine front, or you're going to need to get very comfortable with hammer veneering, uh, curved serpentine surfaces. So, um, the third option that you mentioned is building a substrate type structure out of thinner stock and then laminating them together to create the front. So, uh, this is what I would refer to as bent lamination. So you're, you're sawing out a bunch of say, you know, 16th or eighth inch thick pieces, uh, typically on a bandsaw and then sanding those pieces or planing those pieces and then gluing them all back together with a form to create the serpentine front. And essentially it's like, you know, a stack of cards where you can shape them and the, the thin pieces will bend and slide past each other. And then once the glue is dry, they hold that form. I would say this is your best bet if you want the inside of the drawer to match the serpentine shape of the drawer, of the outside of the drawer front. The challenge here is going to be with cutting your dovetails. You can, you're going to have to create the drawer front first. So you're going to have to saw out all your strips and you can do this with a handsaw. Um, it's for drawer front size pieces, especially small drawer fronts, like you might do for a bedside table. Um, it's probably not too bad. It probably wouldn't be too bad to saw out those pieces. I've, I've used my big four foot, um, frame saw to saw veneer down to about a 10th of an inch thick. Um, so it's certainly doable, you know, with a standard handsaw even, 
for um, you know a regular like a four inch or five inch drawer front that you might have in a in a bedside table. So you're going to want to saw out that veneer, however many pieces you need to get the thickness, the drawer thickness that you need. If you're going for you know like a three quarter inch drawer front, um, that's six eighths. So you're going to essentially need about six one eighth, six or seven pieces of veneer. Um, in order to make that bent lamination and you're going to create your form. I would use, I would suggest using either liquid hide glue or one of the more modern glues. I think the, the one most commonly used by, um, professionals for bent lamination type work is like a, a urea type glue. I'm not sure exactly what it is. I've never used it. So I would probably opt for liquid hide glue because it gives you a nice long open time. Um, and you don't need any special mixing equipment or vacuum bags or anything like that. Create yourself a couple of calls in the shape of the serpentine front that you want. Take those strips and slather them up with liquid hide glue and then glue the glue them together between the calls and create that serpentine front. Once the glue is dry, scrape off the excess and, and size your drawer front. And you're going to have to be careful to cut the ends of the drawers at the correct angle to the serpentine front. So that's going to be probably the most difficult part is figuring out that layout and getting those layout lines right. But once you cut that drawer to size, then you can lay out your dovetails in your serpentine front and saw your half blind dovetails and Bob's your uncle. And then it's essentially like assembling a square drawer. Um, so it really comes down to what you want this finished piece to look like. Do you want the drawer front flat on the inside of the drawer? Then I would say shape it from solid stock. Do you want the drawer front inside to be serpentine shaped to match the outside of the drawer front? Then I would say go the bent lamination route. Um, you can certainly go the solid stock route and have the drawer, the serpentine front match um, on the inside as well. But what it's going to mean is carving away a lot of stock, um, which you're certainly, you know, you can certainly do that. There's no reason that you couldn't. I just think it would be, if, if it were me doing it, if I wanted the, um, flat drawer front on the inside, I would go solid stock. And if I wanted the serpentine inside and outside, I would go the bent lamination route with, uh, with calls and liquid hide glue. So I hope that helps. So our last question today comes from Rick. Rick wants to know, how do you sharpen a heavily cambered blade like a scrub plane blade? I've converted an old Stanley Jack plane to use as a scrub plane with a heavily cambered blade, but I have trouble sharpening the blade. So Rick, there's a couple ways you can do this. Um, Veritas has as part of their, I think it's the Mark II honing guide. If you use honing guides, they have a camber roller which should allow you to use a jig, uh, a honing, honing guide to hone a heavily cambered blade. I've never used the jig myself, so I don't know how heavy of a camber that that, that extra roller, that, that, uh, camber roller will allow you to, um, allow you to hone, but it's certainly one option. Um, the other option is you really need to learn to hone freehand. Um, and I would suggest take a look at a video that I did. Um, it's on my YouTube channel. I did the, the video 
quite a few, quite a number of years ago, probably back in 2009, on sharpening curved edges. And I think I touched on cambered plane blades and I touched on um, molding planes and gouges and things of that nature. So check that video out on my YouTube channel. But the gist of it is when I hone um, most things, I, I hone freehand. And the real benefit or the, the real, um, what really makes that task easier for me is hollow grinding. So I don't know how you created your camber on the blade. Um, it, it, it says you converted an old Stanley to use as a scrub plane with a heavily cambered blade. Um, you don't say whether or not you ground that blade on a grinder. So if you did use a high-speed grinder, um, you're going to have a hollow bevel. That hollow bevel is perfect for helping you to register the bevel of that iron on a stone for honing freehand. Um, essentially, it gives you two points of contact. And when you can feel the heel and the very tip of that blade contacting the stone, you've got it registered correctly. So in essence, if you've got a hollow, a hollow grind on that camber, it's really no different than honing a, a flat blade, a straight blade with that same hollow grind. But what you're going to have to do is sort of roll the blade as you go. And what I do is I'll start at one corner and I'll make, you know, four or five strokes with, with finger pressure over the one quarter of the blade. And then I'll move my finger slightly to, let's say I started at the left corner of the blade. I'm going to move my finger, you know, one position to the right and hone another few strokes and then move my finger one position to the right again and hone a few more strokes. And then I'm going to move my finger pressure to the center of the blade and hone a few more strokes. And I'm going to do this, keep moving by like one finger width across the blade with pressure, uh, where I'm putting the pressure of, uh, of that leading hand. Um, and just taking, you know, you know, four to six strokes at a time, and I'm going to move back and forth across the blade and do that a few times with my, you know, say my thousand grit stone until I have a good burr formed across the entire camber. Then I'll go back and do that same thing on my polishing stone where I'll start at the left corner and I just move finger pressure across the edge of that iron, gradually making, you know, four to six strokes at each position on the blade. And on the polishing stone, I'll move back and forth across the blade a couple of times because that's going to help to hit those little areas in between. And you might think what you're going to, what you end up with then is sort of a faceted edge. And I guess you kind of do, but it's a scrub plane. So it's really, it's not a finishing tool. So you don't need that super high polished, um, you know, shaving sharp edge. You're going to be hogging off material primarily across the grain, probably if, if you're doing a lot of heavy scrub work. Um, so you're not looking for a finished surface out of this anyway, you're looking for an edge that is sharp and serviceable. Um, so, you know, I would, I would suggest freehanding it, especially if you're hollow grinding, um, that camber and, and hollow grinding that bevel. Once you have the hollow grind freehand honing is, is really a piece of cake because you just register the bevel on your stone, feel the, feel the heel and the and the toe of the, uh, of the, the bevel register on the stone. And then you just move pressure from your hand over every couple of strokes and, and get that blade as sharp as you can. 
but I wouldn't fret about it too much because, as I mentioned, you know, it is just a scrub plane and it's really meant for for kind of rough work. So you're going to refine that surface with other planes after you're done using the scrub. So get it as sharp as you can and, and don't uh, don't beat yourself up over it too much because it's just a scrub plane. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com or you can leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123 or use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt015. And in the show notes, you'll find any links that I refer to in today's show. And you can also find links to follow me on all of my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon. You can make a one-time donation through PayPal. You can send me a handsaw for sharpening. And you'll find links for all these options in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thank you again for listening. And until next time, stay sharp, everybody. <laughs>